Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight, we're saying up yours to the good dinosaur. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I'm Thomas Mariani, and there's a snake in my boot! I am Adam Thomas to infinity and beyond! Ride him. Cowboy. I suppose. Yeah, but this isn't the usual pixar buddy duo tonight uh, because we have a special guest with us we have um someone who you might have seen or at least heard of in our feedback section all the time he always posts and he is making his podcast debut and is also our first podcaster that's from all the way in jolly old england it is james rodriguez james how are you doing hello governor pip pip cheerio just classing it up so great so james you um really wanted to come on the show and i Mm -hmm. gave you a bunch of topics and you decided to go with our discussion for tonight which is about pixar films in honor of toy story 4 coming out why pixar well i suppose pixar has always been a touching subject for me i mean the very first film i was taken to see in the cinema was toy story where we live for most of our life my family and i had a close cinema half hour drive away and we tend to venture out for family stuff. A lot of them were Pixar films, so it's always just had a special place in my heart. Yeah, I mean, I had a similar thing. I think we're from the generation that really grew up with Pixar. We started making movies mm-hmm. in 95, obviously, with the first Toy Story. And has gone from there. And I obviously had a huge attachment, especially to those Toy Story movies. I, there's a story that I was, I think, about four or five years old. And I was the mm-hmm. ring bearer for a wedding of one of my parents' friends. And I had a Woody and a Buzz that I always carried with me. And they kept telling me, hey, you need to put those down so you can be the ring bearer. And I would insist, like, I'm not letting them go. So I literally walked down and gave the rings with fucking Woody and Buzz in my hand. <laughs> like, I was that Aww. fucking personally attached to those characters. And I've watched pretty much every single Pixar movie since I would say probably A Bug's Life. I don't know if I saw Toy Story in the theater because I was so young. But I, I definitely at least saw, like, all the ones since. Uh, maybe except, mm. I think, like, a Cars 2 um, and some of the other lesser ones that we, we can get into in a bit. But Adam, you're a bit older mm. than the two of us, but I'm sure you yes. also loved watching these films as they came out. Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, just as even to look at it like a computer generated, you know, animation, what the leaps and bounds they instantly were over all the competition and, and basically still remain to be. I think I've seen every Pixar movie except for Cars 2. I have not seen Cars 2. I have zero interest. The only reason I've seen Cars 3 is because it's on one of the streaming services and my kid likes it. But other than that, yeah, I've seen them all. And I I tend to Mm. actually kind of like all of them. I mean, some of them are lesser, but they're still all a marvel to even look at, though. Yeah, like even the lesser ones where the story's like, oh, fucking hell, it's (laughs) beautiful to look at. And 
that's a testament to their craft, really. Yeah, I mean, because obviously they, with Toy Story, created the first feature-length computer-animated film, and animation's pretty much gone that way since, in terms of, like, bigger mainstream films. Um, and it's it's definitely also, I think we can agree that, the, I think it was around the first Cars where we started getting spottier Pixar quality. I mean, we still got great mm. ones after that, like a Ratatouille or a Wally. But as things kind of went along, you got your Carses, you got your Braves, you got one of the films we're talking about tonight. <laughs> Some of that probably came from, you know, there was a point where a certain person who wore a lot of Hawaiian shirts and is a fucking piece of shit that started Pixar, <laughs> like, kind of separated from the company and started working more on, like, Disney's, like, bigger feature film side. I think that's weird. It's like, as we got, you know, like, uh, Tangled's and Wreck-It Ralph's, I think that's where Pixar kind of started to suffer a bit more. But they they still do deliver, like, big classic ones, like, probably as recently as Inside Out. I think it's phenomenal. And from what mm. I've been hearing, despite how, you know, we, we all kind of felt Toy Story 4 wasn't necessary, the, re- the reviews are saying it's pretty great. So you you can't quite ever count them out. Yeah, well, I can. And I will. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but we'll specifically target toward our two films for tonight, which uh, at the end of last week's episode, we did our random selection of our two Pixar movies. First, the good one is 2009's Up!, and then the bad one is 2015's The Good Dinosaur. And uh, let's go ahead and get into our first one with Up. This summer, Disney Pixar will take you on their next great adventure with Carl Fredrickson. And he won't even have to leave his house. Come on, boys! This summer, Journey to a Lost World. With these guys. Please let me in. No. All right. Disney Pixar's Up. So Up came out uh, May 29th, 2009. I remember distinctly, it came out the same weekend as a previous subject of our show, Drag Me to Hell. It was the counter-programming to Up. Uh, what a so double build that would make. Yes, what, what a double bill indeed. Uh, and it was um, the 10th feature for Pixar, um, and it is directed by Pete Docter, who previous to this directed Monsters, Inc., and after this would direct Inside Out. This was my pick, and it's one that gets a lot of acclaim and the clout and all this other stuff, but mostly really for the opening of the movie, which details how Carl, as played by Ed Asner, um, meets Ellie, who, uh, as children, they meet each other, and then you see their entire sort of marriage and life go on from there until Ellie dies, and that was obviously the moment everyone talked about out of this movie, which, to be fair, it's breathtaking. It's some of the best animation that's ever been shown theatrically. It's such a great visual way of displaying an entire life in about five minutes, and it's uh, breathtaking to watch. I believe we would agree. Absolutely. You know, it's totally doesn't matter but now did she miscarry or she can't conceive that's what i never understood i think they leave it open enough to where like you don't quite know the details of that but still you still sucks feel either way i mean yeah, it's, still pretty, it's still a bummer, yeah, it's still kind of a bummer. Call it my just total morbidity like well which one is it though <laughs> it, it really doesn't matter i would have loved to have been in the theater with you and all the families just like well which one was it up <laughs> 2009, yeah, I would have been like in my mid-20s, around a bunch of kids, what the fuck, no, 
<laughs> but maybe despite not knowing the specific details, I'm sure, James, you agree with uh, the sentiment? Yeah, I think it's not radical to say that the opening is one of the best feats of work to have come out of Pixar. I mean, it's a short detail that journeys through an entire life. Doesn't need to go into too much detail about the first date, his engagement. It says everything that you need to know to understand the life they shared over the, what, 60, 70 years? And it doesn't even use that much dialogue to deliver it. It feels indebted to silent cinema in such a way. Well, yeah, that's true. It definitely feels indebted to that. And I, it's also the, the the person that is oh, the biggest head of this movie, I would argue, is Michael Giacchino with his score. is one of the best scores, I think, of the last 10 years. I think it's such a breathtaking, beautiful score that displays so much and it doesn't just do the heavy lifting it also it just like accentuates all the great stuff that's already in this entire movie not just this opening and that's the thing mm. is really the reason i picked this is just because i've heard plenty of people say oh man after that great opening the movie just kind of like trails off it becomes a lot more about like this high-flying adventure with the bird and the dogs and all this other stuff and I think that really dismisses a lot of the beautiful stuff that happens even after that opening. I think this movie is such a great way of showing off the Carl Fredrickson character really dealing with grief and really how that grief translates to continuing on with your life even though something so important is gone. I think the way that they display it throughout this whole movie is so beautiful. I think it just, from that opening, it just skyrockets onward. So it was like a balloon carrying a house. Hey. hey there's your one um <laughs> no, no i agree with you man and like i said uh pre-show i think this is the first time honestly that i've watched this movie from beginning straight to end i've seen it in pieces you know and if you put it all together it'd probably make the whole film but to watch it from front to back yeah i just completely fell in love with this movie uh, it's not my favorite Pixar movie, but it's definitely right up there. I, there's so much going for this movie. I mean, just the character design alone, uh, the dogs, even the bird, Russell. I mean, there's just so much heart in this movie. And uh, like you said, it, it really shows growth and, you know, how you just kind of got to move on from things, too. Uh, even when you don't want to, it's, it'll be better for you in the long run. I just, I really, really find it a heartwarming story. I think it's a lovely tale about a man who's trying to accept his wife's loss. I mean, he goes through this whole thing. He talks to his house as if it's his actual wife, even calling it Ellie. It's his last connection to the woman he loves, the woman he lost. And it's not until, spoiler alert, until the end that he's finally ready to let go and move forward with his life with this new family that he's forged. Yeah, and I especially love just the childishness of the image of like, oh, it's a bunch of balloons carrying off a house is like on its face ridiculous. But at the same time, what I love so much how that image really does, sorry, to, for lack of a better term, soar in such a beautiful way where especially that whole sequence where like all of the fucking balloons come out of the top of his house and he's just flying throughout the city and everyone's just gasping and just can't really find the words. It's such a beautiful, simple image. That's what I really love about this movie is it takes such interesting, simplistic ideas. And even a lot of Pixar movies do this about like, Oh, Hey, what if we could make our houses fly with balloons? Hey, what if um, we could hear our dogs talk? 
you know, just simple stuff like that, or even the, the, the dynamic, the classic buddy dynamic they always use in these movies of like, hey, Carl's this old, bitter guy, and Russell is this adorable, young, naive kid, perfect buddy team that clashes with each other, opposites attract kind of thing. It's such a fun dynamic that's so simple. Pigs already manages to flourish so much detail out of the simple, and I think this is the most brilliant example of that. I want to pose a question. Now, if, if, say they did make this a little more realistic, this movie, which is, you know, impossible, but how long do you think it would take before the Air Force took him down? <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's not very long. No, probably not long at all. I mean, if that if we wanted, if we wanted like, the 14-minute movie where it's, like, after that beautiful opening, just like, I'm flying! <laughs> Right. Horrible, like a just, major metropolitan area. Just shards of wood going everywhere. You see Russell's hat float down <laughs> right. to the ground. We got one away. Tango down. Tango down. Which though, I will say, this movie does have probably the darkest Pixar moment. That's one of my favorites. Where he is, they're still in the city, and Russell's like, "Oh, look, I could almost touch that building." And Carl thinks he can like so bring the rope down, and then he's like, "Let's go." <laughs> And it cuts back like, no, that's not going to work. That might be the darkest moment in a Pixar movie of humor. And it's so perfectly timed. I don't know what it is about that moment, but every time I watch that film, just when the rope slips, I just like, oh my God. And I know it's, Pixar's not going to kill the kid like that, but it still makes me jump. Maybe I'm just an idiot. <laughs> we'll err on the side of it's the effect of the Pixar filmmaking. <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll go with that. But I I would say, like, around the time this came out, so impressed by especially vocally Ed Asner's performance in this movie. I think Ed Asner is always an underrated character actor in general. And I think here especially, it's such a great way of just vocally displaying so much about this character and how bitter he is now, completely lost he is, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, how much he still holds a lot of deep-seated emotions in him. I, I think it's an incredible performance from him, and maybe my favorite performance in any Pixar movie, vocally. No, yeah, I agree. It's such a good performance that you almost forget that it's not Ed Asner on screen. Like, like that Carl's not Ed Asner. Like, he's just a character. Like It's perfect. But then when you look at it, he looks like kind of a mix between Ed Asner and Scorsese a little bit. A bit of a bit of Spencer Tracy as well was apparently uh, that's true. Yeah, inspiration. Yeah. No, but he's probably it's probably my favorite vocal performance mm. from Pixar. Movie. I, I I agree. Funny enough, um, in Colombia, this film got a lot of unexpected publicity because Carl is has an uncanny resemblance to one of their ex presidents. Like if you search. Um, sorry, just reading it. Julio Cesar Turbe Ayala. He looks right down to the bow tie. Looks right like him. I mean, I think that just displays a lot to the universality of Carl's design. Um, I think because admittingly, like, I remember when this came out, I instantly thought like, "That's my grandfather." I was just having dinner with that dude last night, and it's like that dude looks exactly like Carl Fredrickson. I think it's such a great caricature of an old man in a way that feels very universal, and it also kind of resembles another apparent inspiration from Pete Doctor with the designs of the specific movie was the Muppets in terms of like a lot of the facial designs and stuff like that. And you can also see like a bit of Statler and Waldorf and Carl. <laughs> and um, even with like when we get to Kevin has obviously like a sort of a big bird effect almost in terms of the design as well. I think that just shows how they are able to dis- once like the Muppets sort of display this very um, simplistic but engaging character with like Carl, especially in like the shapes 
where Carl's like this very square, sort of almost robotic-looking design in terms of his body, versus this sort of round, almost eggish joy of Russell. I just love, even visual, they, they bounce off each other so well. Yeah, and then you got the main uh, heavy, who's tall and lanky. It's perfect, like, against each other. Played by your boy, Christopher Plummer. Dude, he is my boy, too. And he, You know what, man? Fuck you if you don't like Christopher Plummer. <laughs> He's... He's dope in this movie, too. Like, it's Christopher Plummer, but man, that guy can't do no wrong in my eyes. And also, I would not know it was Christopher Plummer if you hadn't told me. That's because you don't love the C Plum like I do. What, what also works about his character, I love how the villain does a, is a great contrast to the main player. Because that happens a lot in these Pixar movies where you have whatever villain character is a direct sort of either mirror or correlation to the main character. Like, probably my favorite example is like Toy Story 2 with Stinky Pete. Um, who is very much Woody from the first movie, just gone way too far into hating space toys. Versus this time, I like the idea of Carl coming up against his idol, the person that made him want to be an adventurer, and realizing that that dude was just totally into it for the sake of glory and fame and making his name what it needs to be and destroying anyone in his wake. And how, like, sort of that perception that he had about what adventuring was when he was so into it with Ellie was just like, oh, wait, we kind of had this beautiful view of it, but we could use to see how this could have corrupted if we went there, especially however younger we might have been. And we could have ended up easily in this sort of camp. And how really adventuring mainly depends on like having a good motivation at heart versus mm. you know being a crazy old man. Who, I, I love also another dark moment, how he has like all the different helmets with the goggles uh-huh. on little like uh, wooden staples. It's like, oh, they tell me so many stories. Hiking... Bird watches and all this shit. It's like, oh crap! They're implying he just fucking made heads roll, yep. literally. Yep. <laughs> and by the way, he's aged fantastic. That character because he had to, he had to be in his thirties probably when Carl was just a little boy. Now Carl's seventy seven and he looks younger. Like so, that's another thing too. But I guess there was like there was some original plot idea to where maybe those birds' eggs could like reverse aging. Yeah. So I'm guessing maybe that might be why he's so young and they just stuck with the design. Yeah, I I, th- I believe that was the case, but also you didn't really need that. I'm glad they no, kind of got absolutely. rid of that. Because I really like just this, the very simplistic nature of this plot, I think, makes like all the details really flourish pretty well. Yeah, I mean, you don't need anything too complex to sell a villain. I mean... Like you said, that scene with the hitting all the goggles and helmets and just showing how cracked he's been from all this time, isolated, focused on clawing his way back and proving his name is proving his name right all over again. It That sells it. I, we need to talk more about Russell, mm. though. I think Russell is the most underrated MVP of this whole movie. And I think he's such, like, as voiced by Jordan the guy, he is such an adorable doofish child that I can't stop watching all the interaction between him and Carl right from the snipe bit at the very beginning when he's introduced is such a cute endearing scene where he just, he just earnestly wants to help out because of this like connection it has to you know the scout thing that he's a part of and his father and all this other stuff I think they do such a great job of displaying so much about Russell's home life through very simple conversations and especially a scene that, like, really hits me is the bit where they're just talking about, oh, yeah, I, whenever I used to go to my, you know, after my scout things with my dad, we'd go over and get ice cream, and I'd get chocolate, and he'd get peanut brittle. I I really miss the small moments like that. It just really fucking hits you 
so hard, just small, intimate, beautiful things like that. Yeah, it's those smaller moments which I find to be the best of this film. I mean, don't get me wrong, I do love the more extravagant, the more adventuresque elements, the more out there stuff which Pixar do so well. But it's those, just the two of them, Carl and Russell bonding and having a lovely back and forth which really works for me it's just like hey you want to play the quiet game oh my mum loves that game <laughs> right <laughs> yeah and the backstory they give russell too you're like without really getting into it because they didn't need to that's another great thing like we already addressed about this movie there's no need to get really in depth with backstory for any of these characters you get who the characters are they're fully fleshed out as soon as you see them but his little backstory it's so tragic and then even at the end where he's getting his badge and, you know, his his father's not there, but Carl steps up. You're like, oh, man. Oh, I just want this little scamp to get it together and go to college. <laughs> yeah, especially there's that bit where they're talking, like, campfireside, and he brings up, like, oh, yeah, my dad's not always around all the time. Why don't you hit him up? Oh, I always call, but, you know, uh, Lisa always picks up the phone. You call your mother Lisa? Lisa's not my mom. Yeah. And just awkward silence. That's so perfect. That says everything you need to know about that relationship and how Carl is just realizing his head and how that instantly makes him way more sympathetic to Russell. I just love that they display so much of that just visually. This movie's honestly a masterpiece of visual storytelling throughout the whole thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I hundred percent agree. Uh especially with like even when you brought it up earlier, when you he first deploys the balloons and just the different colors that are coming through the sun through the balloons. Like when it's illuminating the little girl or then the two orderlies and everything. This movie is just breathtakingly beautiful. And also, I said, there's a lot of really good, subtle jokes in this movie, too. Like, there's a lot. My favorite is probably the Wilhelm scream from the dogs. (laughs) The dogs (laughs) so good. I laughed so loud. But this movie's just, it's such a treat. Like, I guarantee you, I'm now I'm going to watch this again and again and again, especially because my kids sat and watched the whole thing with me. But I can't wait to see more of the little subtle things. Like, this movie's movie's the real deal, man. It's the real deal, bro. I mean, I feel Russell delivers a lot of the wonderful little moments when he first meets Kevin and he's just, hey, Mr. Fredrickson, I've brought back that snipe and carl's just all like oh sure you have not realizing there's a a giant bird towering behind him yeah i i love so much of like kevin i think is such a great example of a character who displays so much emotion without ever saying anything because obviously we have the dogs that talk Mm. but kevin is my favorite animal honestly in this whole movie because it had like the way it bounces off of people like when carl was like shooting it was like she was like moving its feathers and shit like that it's such a great example of like how to build an animal character and build so much character and emotion especially when later on she is just like in pain with her leg and then like calling out to her babies that she can hear on the other side. There's so much actual like emotion displayed through kind of a cartoonish character. And it's it's I think that's another genius element of this movie with Pixar especially. And also just it's so funny that he calls him Kevin. <laughs> I just love how nondescript and stupid a name like Kevin is for this majestic giant bird. Even when he finds out it's a female, it doesn't change. Yeah, it's still I'm Kevin. Good. Yep. It's so yep. still Kevin. Kevin's a girl. <laughs> and I love Doug. Doug's great, uh, you know. I just met you and I love you. 
<laughs> it's such a dog. yes and that's another great example where pixar will often like just put in one of their employees to do like a temp voice but then thinking they replace it with some other like actual actor and they're like oh no we gotta keep this voice and that's bob peterson one of the writers who interestingly was supposed to direct our next movie and then got dropped off the project we'll talk about that in a second um, but yeah, I, I love his voice for Doug, especially just how he exuberates everything about like a dumb but lovable dog in his voice. That's so amazing. It captures the essence of a dog through that. Just like the, uh, obviously the squirrel bit, which is probably like <laughs> another cultural touch- touchstone as movies done where every time I hear somebody talk about like being distracted in the last 10 years, they all often mention that I'm squirreling. I'm looking off to the side, just looking at a squirrel. Stuff like that. And that contrasts so well also with the other dogs, particularly Alpha, obviously, <laughs> uh, which is, it's such a dumb joke of like, oh, it's, its voice is affected, so it t- sounds like a chipmunk. But it's so goddamn funny when he delivers these big villainous monologues and he's got this fucking chipmunk voice. <laughs> it's on a primal level. It's so. And how they, something so simple like, the dogs mistaking Russell for a tiny mailman. <laughs> Your mailman friends can't help you now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I love the, the cone of isolation. <laughs> and yeah, something and... so simple as Doug just going, I hid under your porch because I love you. Just <laughs> that's exactly how I'd imagine if a dog could talk to me. It sounds that just so sad but loving right yeah they do such a great job of like especially really visually matching those things without making it seem like the dogs are actually talking Mm. they do a great job like matching sort of like how these dogs are like expressing themselves vocally but how they would actually move in a somewhat realistic way like i love the bit when um the two other dogs are with alpha like start laughing at his voice and they just kind of like move their heads like a dog would and just open their mouths agape, but they're actually laughing hysterically on the mics. I think that's a subtle thing. Another great example, like how Pixar can actually manage to like make these sort of vocal things match without having to resort to them just literally talking. I think that's another great example of the animation here. Um, But I'll, I'll ask what is the most emotional moment in this movie that isn't related to the opening? I'd probably say um, at the end when, the dad doesn't turn up for Russell's ceremony and Carl takes his place and pins on the grape soda badge. It's such a lovely touch of how he's ready to move on and he's passing on the gift from his late wife that he wore every day onto this surrogate son of his. Yeah, I like when uh, Carl's going through the adventure book and he finally goes further in the book than he ever has. And he sees that she did live all the adventures that she wanted. And she had a very fulfilling life that he was enough for her that she didn't even need to go to Paradise Falls. Like she already had what she wanted. That was really the moment. Like usually mm-hmm. when I get like emotional or cry about a movie, it's usually just like I kind of feel it or there's a couple tears that come down. I was ugly crying this time. <laughs> I almost cried just now describing it. <laughs> right? <laughs> Like, that's really the moment, because it pays off so much about that opening, and with that little note in particular about just, like, I lived my adventure, so go keep living one, that just, like, it's so beautiful, it's so devastating, and it makes this big adventurous climax that happens afterward all the more fun, because Carl is, like, fully fulfilled and realizes, like, I don't need to just go on this journey that basically, I I think they do a great job of hitting at this, too, without expressing it, it's like a suicide mission, basically, for Carl. 
Like, Carl was playing to get that house there on top of Paradise Falls and dying in that house, basically, given yeah. the lack of any provisions mm. he has and all this other shit. They do a great job of hinting at all that, but this is a, like, last mission, I can't keep going after this kind of thing. And he gets another reason not just to, like, keep on, you know, going past this bit at the house, but just living a full life again after finding that. That's such a beautiful sentiment that makes, you know, all the stuff that I've heard some people complain about, like, oh, they're just dogs on the fucking planes, and there's a comedic sword fight. Just, like, that emotional heft makes all that stuff all the more fun, because he's living an adventure. He's doing what Ellie wants him to do in the biggest was over-the-top way. He wouldn't have had the chance to do that if he had just gotten to Paradise Falls and just plumped himself down there. He wouldn't have that chance, and I think that's that's so beautiful that it makes the silliness afterward still just matter so much on an emotional level. Thomas, do you like this movie? I'm having trouble. I mean, it's no Cars 2. Right. Like, the, the peak of Pixar filmmaking. Um, but now, yeah, this this is my favorite Pixar movie. I, I 100% straight on that. I mean, I, I think Ooh. The Incredibles is very close. It's oh. very close for me. And I mean, the Academy are pretty big fans of it too, given this is only one of three animated films ever nominated for Best Picture. Along with before, Beauty and the Beast, after it, Toy Story 3. Um, and oh, it ended up winning for animated film and score. Which, like I said, you guys didn't get much of a chance to talk about, but you guys agree, right? The Giacchino score? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Giacchino's stuff has been great since, well, Lost, and his upscore is some of his best work. It's just really tugs the heartstrings and makes you really feel every note of it. Yeah, but do you guys feel that that distinction of being one of the few animated films nominated for Best Picture is uh, is valid? You think that that's deserving of this movie? It's well-deserved. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I definitely, definitely do. In fact, i got to be honest, what won the year this was nominated? Um, 2009, I think that would have been Hurt Locker, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the yeah. year it beat out Avatar. That's pretty good, too. <laughs> <laughs> if it was Avatar, we would have been up in arms. No, if it was Avatar, we'd be like, fuck this! Fuck this! <laughs> the Academy is bullshit! Well, kind of is bullshit, but yeah, yeah, uh, like, the, the, yeah, you just held off on it for another year, and then King's Speech won, and then you could say it again. Uh, God, wasn't that the first year the Academy expanded their selection to ten films? I believe so, yeah, because that was right after The Dark Knight, and that was the movie that kind of made them say like, well, "We should do like ten. And mm. this was the first year, so it was nominated. It was that weird year where it was like a mixture of like Hurt Locker and Avatar and District Nine and Up. <laughs> It's just that's yeah. such a weird collection of movies, but interesting at least, yeah. It's almost like they were trying to just fit in a load of films with... Because, I mean, this year and the next year are both have animated feature, yeah, a Pixar one as well, nominated for Best Picture. And, well, it's stopped there. We are, it's been nearly 10 years and there's not been another one. I would have argued that... Inside Out should have been nominated. I, I think that's another thing, is that Pete Docter does such a great job. He's one of the few guys on there where... Pixar, obviously, is so much more of like a story collaborative thing. But I think mm. like him and Brad Bird, and to a certain extent, a certain person who wears Hawaiian shirts, um, are kind of the auteurs. Tom Selleck, you're talking that's about right. Tom Selleck. Fine, yes, Tom Selleck, the big papa of Pixar. Obviously, Tom Selleck. Uh, no... All right, it's it's John Lasseter. He can go fuck himself. But yeah, like the, <laughs> the those guys are the few that like I think kind of make their sort of directive stamp on these movies. Where it's not just a Pixar movie, but I think you can make the connection of like Monsters Inc. Up and then Inside Out feel like a specific distinctive voice 
from like specifically like Doctor, who's now the head of Pixar, thankfully, because um, he hasn't done anything horribly allegedly as of yet. Um, but I think he can also, I think, steer this company in a much more interesting direction. At the very least, I hope this direction ho- holds more original fare like Up and Inside Out and a bit less of let's pump out another sequel. But James, we need Finding Marlin. We need it so much. We gotta find Marlin, I guess. But I mean, they've said as much admittingly, but like after Toy Story 4, they said, we're gonna focus more on original films. And there's that one onward? Yeah, is that the fantasy one? Like, where the trolls and stuff? Yeah, it's like suburban trolls and shit, which... I saw Hotel Transylvania before. It wasn't that good. Same exact thing. (laughs) (laughs) I should have said something worse. But yeah, you know, I saw Schindler's List already. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> Man, that movie's going to make a weird turn after they get out of that van <laughs> in that trailer. It's going to be awful. Ray <laughs> Five is going to be in a tower. Um, oh, no. No, I, I'm definitely excited to see where they're going to go. That, that Onward one did not really, not really like filling me with a bunch of joy, but we'll see. I mean... I haven't been supremely disappointed by them, so I can't see why it would start now, especially with this guy helming it. So You, you need to watch Cars 2 to humble yourself. I can't fucking do it. I won't fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do it, man. I'm sorry. I give it Cars 3. I say I watched it. By watched it, I mean I was dicking around on my phone and while my kid watched it. So, no, I, I you know, no, I'm not doing it. I, <laughs> fucking Owen Wilson is a car. Get the get the. Fuck that's your problem that's the big problem <laughs> not anything else that's part of us that's part, i know it sounds shallow but that's probably my biggest problem wow my headlights cool the difference is cars 2 stars mater so larry the cable got your favorite comedian i'm sure you would love it no he is my absolute favorite and in no way a cliche or a stereotype not at all, no. You know, if it wasn't for the Cars franchise, I don't think we would have gone Larry the Cable guy over here. So, thanks, Pixar. Hey, you're welcome. You're welcome. That's a little <laughs> bit of the USA for you, buddy. Yep, yeah, finally, you get the pure joy of the blue-collar comedy tour, James. Isn't it great? <laughs> oh, it's everything I hope for. Absolutely, it should be. You're welcome, mister. <laughs> all right, we're getting far off of this. Let's steer this house back into the direction of Paradise Falls and go into our final thoughts here. Let's go with it. James, your final thoughts on Up. Yeah, it's really odd this film doesn't get as much recognition as it should, especially considering how much the opening is adored and praised by everybody. But at its heart, this is a really touching tale about moving on from past hurt, and it works thanks to the great characters. Well, I love it. It Makes my heart sore to steal one of your quotes, Thomas. We've been using this word too fucking much. We gotta get a goddamn thesaurus. Or a thesaurus. Oh, it's a good uh, transition, but put uh, a pin in it, because Adam and I need to do a final thoughts. Adam, your final thoughts. You know, it's, I don't think it's that this movie didn't get the recognition it deserves. I don't think it has any lasting recognition for some reason. Whereas people still talk about Toy Story 1, 2, and 3, and, you know, Inside Out, and all this other, even Wally more than Up. It's like, I don't understand. Like, Up, to me, is damn near a perfect movie. And it's easily in my top three Pixar movies of all time. Um, it just makes my heart fill with helium to burst. And I think I need to go to the doctor. It, I, I didn't want to say, it makes, make, no, I'm just going to say it. it. makes my heart sore, guys. So, hey. so, sore so high. No, I, I think it's, it's just a lovely, lovely movie. Um, it's got so much heart. And it's very sweet and uh, touching. 
and you don't get that a lot anymore, at least where it feels original in animated films. Usually beat for beat, sort of the same idea, but this one really sort of tugs at the old heartstrings and makes them sore. Twice. Twice. Twice in there. Two for. <laughs> oh my god, we're going to call this podcast "Sores." Now this is the Sores podcast. Soren with Adam yeah, and Thomas. You can. Anyway, um, my, for me, as I said, it's my favorite Pixar movie. I think does such a great job of putting all of their great tricks into one basket in a way that's extremely creative. It has some of the best vocal performances in Pixar's history. It has my favorite score of any of them. Um, I think it's such a beautiful sentiment about, like James mentioned, really growing from something huge and tragic and how especially you can do that at an older age i love the fact that they kind of set carl up as somebody who would be so set in his ways like we didn't mention the whole carmen montage at the beginning which is a great way of setting up where he is at that time um and just how bitter and just through with the world he is and how he doesn't want to progress at all he wants to just stay in his specific spot and not progress anything onward but how from there it keeps on continuing even like some subways ways been mentioned like i love the fact that you see earlier on Ellie, whenever they were at that park they worked at, always worked with like exotic birds. What does Carl run into? <laughs> exotic bird. It's, exactly. Yeah. Kevin, our guest, our other guest in the studio at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's rare we have someone from the movie here. Um, but no, it, it's a great movie. I love it so much. I think it deserves a lot more recognition for not just that amazing opening, but from then on, it just becomes, I think, honestly, a perfect movie. And I can say that about very few films. But let's go to a movie that's maybe not so perfect, to say the least. It is uh, The Good Dinosaur. If you ain't scared, you ain't alive. So, The Good Dinosaur uh, came out, as you mentioned, in 2015, was the second Pixar movie that year, after the previously mentioned Inside Out came out that June, and everyone was so all about it. Then November, on Thanksgiving weekend, November 25th of 2015... Uh, we got The Good Dinosaur, which, before it came out, was sort of marred by some production difficulties. It was originally, as I mentioned, going to be directed by Bob Peterson, who got removed off the project, replaced with Peter Sohn. To be fair, a lot of Pixar movies have had production difficulties. When this was coming up, I was like, well, you know, Toy Story and Toy Story 2 had infamously terrible productions, where, like, the first Toy Story, like, animatic was presented to, like, all the Disney people, and everyone realized, oh, you took all of Jeffrey Katzenberg's notes, and this is garbage. You have to completely start over. <laughs> and then Toy Story 2 was going to be a direct-to-video movie, and then the Pixar guys came in like, wait, we want to actually make this good. Okay, you can do that and put it out in theaters in nine months. Oh, good lord, I didn't know that. I yeah, and that movie's that's fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite one. That's my favorite Pixar movie, period. Wow, and they nearly lost it all. That's true, right. There was a point where like they nearly lost, like I think, 40% of the hard drive of the movie, oh, apparently. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Uh, but, and that movie turned out amazing. So I was like, well, you know, The Good Dinosaur could probably maybe turn out amazing. You know, at that point, Pixar hadn't really disappointed me that much before. And I don't know. I don't think this is a bad movie per se 
but it's extremely aimless. I'd say that's fair. I mean, I think this movie does have genuine moments of heart in it, and there's a lot of cute stuff, but it just feels like a very paint-by-numbers sort of animated movie. It doesn't... Nothing about this movie, other than it does look very good. There's a lot of beautiful scenery and things like that, but it doesn't quite feel like a Pixar movie to me. I think that's my thoughts, pretty much. I mean, this was released the same year as Inside Out, one of the best Pixar films of, well, for me, all time. But it doesn't feel like it came out in the same year. To me, it feels more like a mid-2000 Disney film, like you'd get alongside Chicken Little or Home on the Range. It just, oh, this oh, it just disappointed me. I, I won't go that far, because that's a really <laughs> harsh comparison. I would somewhat agree with, like, it reminds me a lot of something like A Brother Bear, where you're like, there's interesting yeah. elements here that I could see this working, but it just doesn't ever really decide anything specific. Because, like, with a Pixar movie, what I usually love is they have some sort of very simple baseline premise at heart, like, cowboy doll, space action figure, fighting each other for a child's love. It's a very simple premise, you can get behind it, it's easy. With this one, it has, like, a few different ones, and it never sticks to them. Like, the biggest disappointment for me of this movie is they set up at the beginning that, like, oh, this is a world where dinosaurs were never hit by the comet. Mm -hmm. That instantly brings up so many interesting ideas about, like, what if dinosaurs were the dominant species and they kept evolving from here? How does that progress? What does society look like? And they farm. Right! I agree, 100%. (laughs) A hundred percent. How cool would it be if they had, like, fucking office jobs or something? It just became Disney's dinosaurs, basically, the old Jim Henson show. (laughs) Yeah, basically, but that would have totally worked other than this. I mean, to me, this doesn't even feel like a Disney movie. It feels more like a DreamWorks release. Like, I could see this right along with, like, the later How to Train Your Dragons or, you know, things like that. It feels like it would shoehorn, like, kind of right in with those. But yeah, oh, God, the dinosaurs didn't die. The comet never hit. This is what they become? They farm fucking corn? <laughs> the most exciting thing ever, Adam. They Get fucking... the what? They're in Iowa? What the fuck is going on here? And especially, you don't ever get a sense of, like, where that fits in with the rest of the dinosaurs. Like, all these different dinosaurs are so separated from each other that it's like, did they actually not die off? Are they dying off now? Is this, like, post-apocalyptic dinosaur times? Because if we just kind of, like, bump into them so many thousands of yards away whenever Arlo, our main character, kind of bumps into him. Which is especially a bummer, because honestly, I think the moment where this movie lights up for me is when they run into Sam Elliott and the other T-Rexes. I think that's where, like, the movie has so much life breathed Oh yeah, when the Dino Farmer film suddenly becomes a Dino Western, which sounds like a awesome idea and right. you got sam elliott a bad impression right there oh sam elliott's um, in the studio ladies and gentlemen wow <laughs> oh I yeah we're getting all the celebrities tonight okay can i, can I touch your mustache sir that's crazy don't you dare oh, oh i loved you in the star sport you're so great oh uh, man i think for me it's great idea but well, this is probably just going to be my, what I think of the film. And so, great idea. Shame about the execution. The idea of what if the dinosaurs didn't get hit by the comet. It's awesome idea, but it just feels like a copy and paste job where the humans are just, yeah, let's take out the humans, put dinosaurs in there. Oh, look how different it is. No, it isn't. That's bright levels of lazy world building. It's fucking bullshit. 
Well, no, it's not quite that, because they don't even have them, like, in the human society. It's just like, oh, there are these dinosaurs farming, and then thousands of miles away, there's these pterodactyls that have some kind of, like, religious connection to the storm, which is a thread that goes fucking nowhere. Um, And then then thousands of yards away, there's the T-Rexes that have, like, these rustling cattle adventures, where, like, at least with something like a, a sort of bright thing, or like we mentioned, sort of making a dinosaur's the TV show level thing out of this. That wouldn't have been the most original idea, but at least it would have been a more consistent world. There's no real world building going on. It feels mm. like they're just these cul-de-sacs of story that are so separated from each other. No, I, I completely agree. I, I will say, though, that I do like the Spot as a character. I think he's adorable. I, I, I like the idea to where he's like the dinosaur's dog, things like that. But then again, they could have done that. They could have had where the dinosaurs had at humans and things like that. I mean, anything. I mean, that's kind of might be a little pushing slavery a little bit, and we probably don't want to. Do... <laughs> I, would, I would have gone for hopefully more Planet of the Apes with that as opposed to slavery, but sure. <laughs> you don't know. They're farming. Who knows what the hell is going to happen there? <laughs> Anyways, it's it's just ultimately just bland. Sam Elliott's really the only voice acting that stands out in the movie as well, which sucks because, like, Jeffrey Wright, I love Jeffrey Wright. I don't really care that he's the dad. Frances McDormand, don't, don't care that she's the mom. Like, nobody really sticks out in this movie. No performance other than Sam Elliott. And it's because you know it's Sam Elliott as soon as you hear him talk. Yeah, because, I mean, you, when he tells that whole crocodile story, like, I was bit by a croc on my face. Like, that's such a great Sam Elliott moment that you're just, like, kind of giddy mm-hmm. about it. But even just the visual image of, like, how those T-Rexes ride, and it almost looks like they are horseback riding but on their own right. two back feet that's so that's a cool visual but that's more of the clever stuff we're talking about and now they're going through like valleys that look like old monument valley from like all the old westerns and shit like that that's cool and it's like why didn't we have the fucking dinosaur western movie that would have been the right. best that would have been well, more interesting rex dead redemption it would have been perfect <laughs> <laughs> it would have been like right along with rango type of thing though I mean, granted, Rango's not dinosaurs, but you already got the animal western animated movie. So, I don't know. I, I I just, there is so much lost potential here. But again, I still think it's kind of a cute movie. My fucking kid loves it. She loves the movie because she loves dinosaur movies. Well, she thinks every dinosaur movie is a Godzilla movie now. So <laughs> Because of our uh, previous episode. Because of the Godzilla previous one where she watched Godzilla. And she called it the dinosaur movie. So now every dinosaur <laughs> movie, she thinks it's Godzilla. But she loved it. So, I mean, it works for kids. But you got to figure we're also grown-ass men in our mid to late 20s to mid 30s sitting here going, oh, this movie, shit. <laughs> it's not for us at all. I mean, no, I don't mm. know if it's necessarily I think it's shit. Because I think, like, you could watch a Cars too and think, like, oh, that's pure shit. This is way more to me of, like, a brave where it's more frustrating because I see the really good movie in it. And there's just, like, there's so many avenues, especially here, for that. And it just doesn't quite work. And even on an animation level, like, we talked about how gorgeous it looks. I agree with that about the backgrounds. Like, all of the backgrounds and stuff look photorealistic. It's amazing. But then, all the dinosaurs look super goofy cartoony, which is such a weird contrast. It's, like, so odd to see, like, them contrast with the background. I hate the character design. Of Arlo and his family, I can't stand it with the square faces and the big eyes and everything. It it just for some reason it just looks so fucking stupid to me. They look like Fisher Price toys, a hundred percent. 
I don't mind the pterodactyls looking how they did, you know, kind of squirrely with, you know, whatever. Or even the ones that the T-Rexes fight, I get it. They're supposed to be, like, poachers and or whatever. But, fuck, the rest of them just look like Playmobil toys. Or Fisher-Price toys. Like you said, it just... I, I was... I just can't get behind that character design. I just... I can't stand it. But did you never want to see Fisher-Price toys tripping on hallucinogenic berries before? Oh, yeah, that scene. <laughs> Well, the thing with that is, I usually trip on hallucinogenics and play with Fisher Price toys, so I've kind of gotten that movie already. Let go of Lily's toys, Adam. You have to stop. Those are my treasures. She can't have them. <laughs> but, um, no, it's. You could tell that there was a myriad of production issues with this movie. I just feel like if I didn't know about the production issues, it'd still be feel something off. But at least knowing. Of all the shit the film went through, it's been, oh, this makes a bit more sense and just feels uh, like it rushes along with. Uh, <laughs> I love that I it just, sounds like it actually puts you in pain. It's, <laughs> I, full disclosure, I haven't seen either of the car sequels. So before this, the worst, well, not even worst, Cars must be weakest pixar film and even then i had some things i liked about it this is just oh it just really disappointing well yeah because cars at least has just the general theme that's going on about like for you know as kind of pandering nostalgia as it is about like oh mm-hmm. route 66 what happened to going on the big you know sort of trip and finding all these different sort of roadside attractions along the way and now we have freeways like it's it's kind of lame but at the same time i can at least respect that that is some kind of recurring thread that's a theme that goes throughout that entire movie versus this one has so much spattering. Because honestly, I just feel like if I was a kid, I'd be really bored by this movie. Because even as much as you compare it to other, to like DreamWorks movies, for as bad as those can get, they at least feel like they're really going for broke and just throwing everything at the screen. Sometimes it can be just fucking awful. But at the very least, it's like, well, you're kind of trying too hard, but you're trying. This movie just feels so boring. I don't know how many kids would like it would really keep their attention. It didn't keep a lot of people's attention at surprisingly a pretty big number still. $332 million. It is the lowest grossing Pixar film to date by a pretty wide margin. Wasn't it a actual box office bomb? It's their only one that they had lost the money. Yeah. Wow. That's a darn shame. Well, yeah. why am I caring? Fucking <laughs> <laughs> exactly why why are you caring so much i think you know the biggest thing we haven't really talked about because like we kind of mentioned his design but the crux of all of this is arlo may be the dullest pixar protagonist of all time because his only thing is like oh i'm a coward it's like but are you like funny are you interesting he's a whiny brat yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the big problem. Is like even when some people are whiny, like you know Woody in the original Toy Story, he's kind of an asshole to Buzz that whole first part of the movie. But he's got a reason for it, right? There's a reason for it. You you get that he like has this love for Andy and all this other stuff, and they want to have that like sort of father son dynamic, but then they kill off his dad so early. Which by the way, I had no idea that was Jeffrey Wright until I like looked at the credits when I first watched. I'm like, holy fuck, that's Jeffrey Wright. It sounds nothing like Jeffrey Wright, no, <laughs> like at all. And that's another thing with, like, some of the production stuff was it was originally going to be John Lithgow in that part, and there were going to be more siblings voiced by, like, Neil Patrick Harris and Judy Greer and Bill Hader, and they got cut. I mean, 
it feels like they're trying to sell family as a big part of this story from the early scenes of them all making their mark and bonding and Arlo trying to get back. But I suppose outside of Arlo and his father a bit, I didn't really feel that connection. I mean, Arlo's brother's a dick and he never interacts with his sister to my recollection. Remember when you had a sister in the movie and you completely forgot about it? Yes. I mean, she gets her grass watered and then what learns invisibility. Come on. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I don't disagree with you too. And it's like, even the, after his dad dies, like Arlo's the smallest one. His mom's like, you need to do more work around here. You're like, God <laughs> damn. <laughs> Let him grieve. What about the brother who's like twice his size? Why is he not doing anything? Right, right, right. Where the fuck is he? <laughs> it, it really is just like, especially the weird sort of structure thing too. Like what I love about most Pixar movies is they have such a great intricate structure and they, they make such a big deal about it. like, we love to like plan out the story. We, whenever something doesn't work, we go back to the drawing board and like scrap everything. And this movie has the weirdest stru- structural stuff, especially at the beginning where it's like Arlo and his dad try and find spot and end up getting like whisked away in this giant fucking storm and cuts to Arlo is alive but his father just implies dead, and the mom's like, oh, I need to do more work, Arlo. And then Arlo sees Spot like, hey, I'm gonna get you. And then he gets washed off again. It's like, right. you were just washed off like five minutes ago. <laughs> Why weren't you just washed off somewhere on your adventure then? Like, can you imagine if, like, the wave actually killed Arlo the second time? <laughs> <laughs> this movie would have been fucked up. This would have been a dark-ass movie. But, um, it's like the rest of it is, like, Spot cutting him open like a tauntaun to sleep inside of him. But, oh, um... Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> the mother and her remaining yeah. forgotten siblings die because they didn't bring in the harvest before winter. Right, because they disappeared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, it just becomes like Grave of the Fireflies but with fucking dinosaurs. And <laughs> <laughs> have been a more interesting movie. True, yes, completely. <laughs> this is one of Pixar's missteps for sure. It's just, it's kind of a shame that it's not a sequel misstep. Like, this was an original property and it's just kind of uh, fell apart I, I still gotta say i kind of prefer this one to brave um because brave is even more of a letdown for me i'm just like oh man i mean it looks gorgeous i love the character design be like this is just stupid <laughs> i mean this at least there is moments of genuine heart in it i don't know it's just a shitty movie it's a whiny fucking punk ass kid who's not helping his goddamn mother you know, your father died for you, you fuck. Get out there and you chuck that fucking cord. I don't care if you're the smallest one. You have no excuses. Go get that corn or you can go and die like your father did. Okay, Pixar, now I need you to take these two voice tracks and have two Stegosauruses bitching at Arlo in the special edition version. Insert oh. Ray Fines on top of the house. Oh, <laughs> Well, Ray Fines will probably be wasted also, let's be honest. Before we go too far in this really dark direction, I guess it's time for final thoughts on The Good Dinosaurs. So, James, your final thoughts. This is just a big disappointment to me. It has a lot of promise, it has a great cast, and a good idea for a story, and it just squanders it. Don't get me wrong, I did like, well, the idea of Sam Elliott Dino Western, and that whole bit of him got it coming in and doing the, of course I was scared. It's, I liked that didn't go into the typical 
bullshit toxic masculinity real men don't get scared kind of shit it's like yeah it's natural to get scared but i mean it feels like that's the only positive i can make i watched this with my dog and you know what he was absolutely captivated so you at least one of us fucking was it works for dogs and children yeah uh you know like i said there's a couple moments in here that kind of pulled at my heartstrings a little bit i don't know if it's because i'm a father i don't know if it's because i'm a fucking sap I don't know if it's because I was, like, lit up on a highball and a bunch of Milwaukee's best. Could have been that. But it's just a stale movie. Like, I'm saying there's these moments, but I can't even tell you one of the moments. It's just ultimately kind of a really dull, forgettable outing by Pixar, and it's a real shame. Yeah, because even at their worst, they make something memorable. Like, as the only person here who apparently saw Cars 2, um, there are things from that that are seared into my brain that I can never forget like major eating wasabi and i'm just like why do cars have wasabi but uh, this universe is making goddamn yeah. sense i i really agree it's super disappointing pixar and super bland forgettable which is almost worse than some of their worser movies for me on some level just because it's like i i can't believe i could never see a pixar movies really bland necessarily and it's like oh you're adam kind of mentioned like hey this is for kids it's not aimed for us necessarily but it's like these guys have had such an interesting track record that if it was at least, like, an ambitious big failure, like I think a Brave is, I think Brave is going for so much more and has at least so much it's flying at the screen that it just, when it doesn't work, it's still like, well, I can see that you tried. This one doesn't feel like it has that much effort in it beyond, like like I said, the background stuff looks amazing and, and some of the, the moments that we talked about here work. But then there's stuff, like, we didn't even talk about this, the weird shaman Triceratops character. Oh, yeah! And the gag is... <laughs> remember that? Right. You you have that on paper, like, oh, there's a weird shaman triceratops? That sounds great. And then you watch, and you're like, oh, he names all his birds and creatures on his horns different over-the-top names, and then one of them is named, like, Cheryl. Yeah, that's a good joke. That was great. The 10 out of 10. All that company. Um, it, it just... It ultimately ends up being so underwhelming that I'm, you know, it deserves its spot as the lowest grossing Pixar movie and one that sort of deserves uh, to be forgotten. I see what you did. What? I don't even Des- know what I did. Deserves its spot. Oh. That's the name of the boy. Oh. The sad thing is I completely forgot about the name of that yeah, character, no, that's, even that's, though you mentioned yeah. it like 10 minutes ago. What movie <laughs> are we even talking about at this point? Well, that joke soared. Oh, <laughs> that puts a big bow on our discussion of these two Pixar movies. Before we go and do our picking at the end of the episode for next week, uh, we have some feedback we want to read because every Monday on the Double Edge Devilville Facebook and Twitter feed at DEDBpod, we share uh, a call to action about like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite examples of this particular topic we're doing? And so we asked all of you about best and worst uh, Pixar films. And uh, Matt Kozlowski says... Uh, best Toy Story 3 and A Bug's Life, Worst Cars 2. Brian Stitcher of The Horror Returns says, Toy Story and Ratatouille are my favorites, and Cars is my least favorite. Uh, Rachel Hillis says, Absolute Faves, uh, Incredibles, the Toy Story films, especially 2, Ratatouille, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, and Inside Out. As for least favorites, uh, I don't really care for The Good Dinosaur. In fact, I barely remember it. Um, Elwood underscore Tiberius on Twitter says, Wally is hands down my favorite. Uh, weirdly, though, I wound up really getting sold on the Cars franchise after visiting Cars Land at Disneyland. Uh, just really nailed the relaxed mid-century car nostalgia. Strongest cry, though, Inside Out. 
Bing Bong. Still can't see a picture of that character without having to stuff a frog down my own throat. Um, I'd also like to see The Incredibles continued further as a franchise. Love Brad Bird's aesthetic. I had the option of turning off The Good Dinosaur, and I did. I give it credit for having a psychedelic sequence where a feral child and a juvenile dinosaur trip balls after eating the wrong mushrooms, but uh, it's not good. And then Jonathan Havner Mikhail says, um, in a very succinct list here, uh, favorite Pixar movies by era. Early Pixar from 95 to 2000, Toy Story 2. Classic Pixar, 2001-2006, Finding Nemo. Golden Age of Pixar, 2007-2010, Ratatouille. Darkest Timeline Pixar, 2011-2014. All three films between Toy Story 3 and Inside Out are my all-time least favorites. And then Post-Crisis Pixar, 2015-to-the-present, Coco. And then uh, Lance Langford, also the horror turn, says, uh, Finding Nemo is my favorite, Cars 2 is horrible. And then Tori DePina says, uh, the t- favorites, the Toy Story trilogy, both Monsters, Inc. movies, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, A Bug's Life, Wally, and Up, least all three Cars films, and The Good Dinosaur. I never finished Brave, so that too? Well, Lance and Tori are both kind of my fucking shit list forever. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I can't really disagree with any of those. You know, it's been so mm. long since I've seen Ratatouille. I think I've only seen it once. So that's one I'd really, really like to revisit because I remember really enjoying it. And Elwood, come on, bro. You're throwing the cars. Cars, man, come on. Come on. I understand. You had a great time. That's great. You had your memory. You know, Cars Land at whatever park you were, whether it was Disney World or Disneyland. And and that's great. That's great. Leave it there. Don't bring (laughs) that shit home. Nobody needs that. (laughs) (laughs) What happens at Disneyland stays at Disneyland. But no, I mean, the rest of them, you can't really, you can't disagree with really any of them. Mm. Way to go, Jonathan, for the fucking thesis, by the way. <laughs> well, at least the timeline. I think that's a very accurate timeline, though. Mm-hmm. Of especially, um, Darkest Timeline is definitely around that era, like 2011 to 2014. That's around where it started getting rough. And then, yeah, they've been getting a lot better as of recent. And, I mean, I totally agree with him, especially about Coco, I think is their latest masterpiece probably yeah, that might be my favorite actually that might be my favorite i always for some reason toy story 2 i love so much but man do i fucking love coco coco is just talk about pulling at the heartstrings and everything else fucking hell that's a fantastic film even when it was in theaters it started off by torturing you with a frozen special <sighs> we never got that in the uk actually um they actually showed the frozen special as its own little thing for if kids want to take drag their parents to see it. So us Brits got to see Coco on its own. Yay. Well, well, I mean, I remember because the whole thing was they showed it originally with that and Americans, but then especially Mexico fucking hated that. Cause I was just like, Oh, it's Coco. It's this big movie that celebrates our heritage. And it's like, the fuck is this white snowman doing here? Get him the fuck out of here. <laughs> 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 for sure. But uh, would you agree with some of these as well, James, about what are some of your other favorite Pixar's? Well, I have nothing but love for Wally. It's an I think it's an adorable little love story and Wally and Eve are one of my favourite pairings that Pixar has ever created. Finding Nemo, oh we were talking about the opening from up being heartbreaking, and I honestly think Finding Nemo is just as crushing an opener and it sets the mood for the rest of the film up to the perfect finale. Those are some of my favorites. Um, Ratatouille, I remember I like it, but Linguini, the ginger kid, really irritating me. 
outside of that, inside out um, sadness is my Patronus and Bing Bong makes my heart shatter into a million pieces. And Incredibles is, well, I'm superhero mad and this love letter to the genre just is pretty much catnip for me. Oh, and Ender Mode is fucking terrific. No caps! No capes. No. Yes, exactly. I guess we. I kind of talked about this at the end of last episode, and Adam kind of voices, and I agree with it. Um, mm. I still would say Toy Story Two is the best of the Toy Stories. I think it's yeah. no disrespect to the original Toy Story, which is obviously great, mm-hmm. and then even Toy Story Three, which I still really enjoy it. I recently got like the Blu-ray of the trilogy set kind mm-hmm. of thing, and I still dig Toy Story Three. I just still think there's a few points where it feels a bit more maudlin than necessarily needs to be, and way more like they're kind of with other Pixar movies it's like oh they're emotionally manipulating you but it doesn't feel as obvious there's some points in Toy Story 3 where it kind of feels like they're really leaning on like you fucking love these things don't you well look at them fucking <laughs> almost die you're face of shit look at <laughs> a bit uh, I, I think some of it feels a bit contrived but not in a way that I feel like it's and that big of a step down necessarily and nothing mm-hmm. else I'm also that's what makes me more excited about Toy Story 4 because the idea of Forky and they're actually kind of talking about the sentience of these toys is like that's the one corner you never explored so that's at least interesting that's a new avenue to go down but would you guys agree especially james would you agree with that about toy story 2 well personally i hold toy story is my favorite of all the pixars the first one it's probably due to nostalgia but i have so much love for it but that's not a knock on toy story 2 it's a masterful sequel to a film i consider masterful and Fuck it, I love Toy Story 3. It even, yeah, it emotionally manipulates at times, but it... Ah, the fucking fireplace scene just has me streaming tears. That ah. is such a ballsy move on their part, too. Like, mm. these, these toys accepted their fate that they're gonna burn to death. Like, it's so insane to me. I can't fucking believe it. Oh, I especially love, have you seen the video online of, like, the guy who, like, showed his parents who hadn't seen it before, Toy Story, and he edited out the actual rest of the movie? No. So he made it, there's a video online that's really awesome where it's, like, it's so great where he just shows it to his parents and he showed them a version that just says, like, oh, they're accepting fate and then it fades out and then a sad version of You Got a Friend in Me plays over the credits. (laughs) (laughs) It's so fucking funny. (laughs) Wow, that is... Wow. His mom Lou just is like, they ended it like that? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but I mean, I'll also say like I think my bigger reason necessarily, I think the emotion manipulation thing might not have been that fair because any movie is really kind of trying to do that. I think it's just more, Toy Story 3 does build a lot on the stuff that Toy Story 2 especially did. I think it builds on a lot of those themes and kind of recycles them, not necessarily in an overly, like we're completely duplicating it way. But I think it just does a lot of things Toy Story 2 already, I think, accomplished beautifully. Like, I don't think we would get the stuff we get in Up or any of these other, like, big emotional Pixar moments without the whole Jesse backstory sequence in Toy Story 2. I think that is so crucial to, like, what turned Pixar from, like, oh, wow, they made computer long-form animated movies to they will fucking tear your soul in half. Oh, that Jesse sequence is... Oh, that's heartbreaking. I mean, yeah, um... Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3 do share a lot of similar themes, but I always thought that Toy Story 2 brings up like the ideas of, of 
Andy's not going to want to play with you anymore. And the toys are, by the end of it, they're like, yeah, we'll be ready for when that time comes. And then that the theory that they'll be ready is put into motion in Toy Story 3. And it turns out that no jack shit about they're not fucking prepared. Anybody Just this... else think Andy, Andy's kind of a fucking nerd? well well, yeah i I think that's the thing is uh, they kind of villainize sid in the first toy story but it's like that's how a lot of kids do kind of play with their toys anyway they kind of like tear them apart andy's the fucking serial killer at this point he's like he's like 19 (laughs) going to college that's Sheriff Lenny! Oh! And you're like, oh. Do we need Toy Story 3.5 where it's like a college campus murder serial killer movie? Right, with Andy? just as Woody. Yeah. <laughs> I have become Woody. <laughs> there's a snake in my boot. It's enough. Right. Now there's a snake in your mouth. <laughs> I don't know why, but now I'm imagining Happy Death Day, but with... Woody from Toy Story, so thanks for that. that... I got nightmares now. You know, know, Pixar hasn't made their horror movie yet. Uh, Come on, guys, it's it's bound to work. Wouldn't that be crazy if they do it like right out the gate? It's like Cannibal Holocaust level (laughs) of insanity. You're going fuck (laughs) with songs by Randy Newman. (laughs) You gotta spike up your butt. But, you know, I'll, I'll close it at least with the Toy Story thing. We didn't even mention this with our last movie, but um, it's weird that they had a main character in The Good Dinosaur who's a neurotic kind of awkward dinosaur because uh, they already kind of perfected that with Rex, who's like my favorite side character in any of those movies. Yeah, I think he's mine too. I don't know. I do love Ham. But, uh, yeah, Rex might be my favorite too out of all the Toy Story side characters. He's so funny. That, that's another weird thing where, like, those movies – just like the fact that especially with the first one I watched it so much as a small child that even still when I see and hear Tom Hanks's voice I'm just like oh man that old dude looks like Woody and then when I hear Wallace Shawn I'm like oh god that little guy sounds like Rex and then I hear Tim Allen I'm like oh that convicted cokehead sounds like Buzz Lightyear Michigan's own oh yeah it's so weird the one of childhood cinema's greatest pairings comes from Mr. Everybody Loves Him, Tom Hanks, and oh, fucking Tim Allen. Yeah, porn stash coke smuggler. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, part of me was just like, when they did like that animated Buzz Lightyear series and they had Patrick Warburton do the voice yeah. of Buzz Lightyear, I'm like, why didn't you just redub all these movies with Patrick Warburton? <laughs> Tim Allen does a fantastic job. No, I, that's true. That's true. It's like Toy Story movies and Galaxy Quest are the ones where it's like, okay. Love you earned your existence for now. Um, Just but, don't do any more harmful narcotics. No, yeah, or be a really stupid conservative piece yeah. of shit. Anyway, we have some other feedback to read. Uh, Lance Langford says in reference to Samuel Jackson, the topic of our last episode, says, um, The 90s were a true sweet spot for Samuel Jackson's performances in Jurassic Park, True Romance, and of course Pulp Fiction. In between his many appearances as Nick Fury, he has gone into a kind of I'll-do-anything-that-pays mode with examples like Big Game, the Robocop reboot, and Cell. And then Tori responded to our lovely conversation about him at the end of that last episode, where he talks about, no fucking way, you guys reviewed The Caveman's Valentine? LMFAO. Uh, my dirty floor predicted that Jumper would be the pick, and he had literally a shot of the Jumper DVD on his floor. 
And then he also had a shot where I talked about, like, oh, hey, yeah, we kind of roasted you. And he apparently had a conversation with Shaquille where he's like, yeah, you guys fucking roasted me hard, but I deserved it. <laughs> yeah, guess what? It's round two, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Clean your fucking house, first of all. And you know what? Yeah, <laughs> we talked about came in okay, You own Jumper. What the fuck? You, you know what, dude? Fuck you, Tori. God damn it. <laughs> oh. You've become Lewis Black from inside out. You've become pure <laughs> yeah. anger. You've come so... to one thing I've always hated. But no, um... No, that's a good point, Tori. Yeah, we did. <laughs> oh, and Lance, I'm not even going to touch Lance. Although I absolutely agree with everything he said. I forgot about that fucking big game movie. A hundred percent. Isn't that the one with the fucking kid? Right. Yeah. Where it's like he, he and Samuel Jackson crash land, and the whole thing was that it was directed by the guy who made Rare Exports. And you're like, oh right. man, he's doing another right. movie, and apparently it was bad. I didn't see it because I heard it was just not good. Got the port. Well, no. Look at it. It looks <laughs> fucking stupid. What is just a cliche piece? Now I'm mad about that too. Good <laughs> lord. See somebody. But what about President Samuel L. Jackson? Well, I actually don't really have a problem with that, frankly. Mm. And I, uh, I don't know that we I even, want my president saying "motherfucker" a lot. But I mean, I guess yeah. really... we've done worse, right? Fuck. Right. I'm sorry, James. This discussion about terrible political figures in the country does not affect you at all, right? Yeah, not, well, I mean, not, not, not at all. I'm <laughs> saying yeah. nothing with the shit show going on down here. You're welcome for Larry the Cable Guy again, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like Christmas rolled into every fucking day of the year. Well, uh, we want to thank also all of you who provide that feedback. We also want to thank people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarda for the art that she uh, provided for our show. She accepts commissions at 502rs.com slash eescarta. And of course, we want to thank Mr. James Rodriguez here. James, what do you have to plug? Oh, well, thank you very much. I'm on Twitter. My handle is RoddersJ04. That's spelled R-O-D-D-E-R-S. I also do reviews at RoddersReviews. Rodders spelled the same way. RoddersReviews.blogspot.com. If you look on there, you can see I recently posted a review of X-Men Dark Phoenix, which was, yeah. That's yeah, it. I would imagine. Yeah. But no, dude, thank you for coming on. It was actually an honor to have you on, and I could listen to you talk all day. Well, thank you very much. It was lovely to be here, and I'm honored you had me on. Yeah, just don't get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> But, of course, uh, we are available as well on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. As we mentioned, that's where we post our feelers about, hey, why don't you uh, tell us your favorite and least favorite things. And also, right now, um, within if you're listening to this as it comes out, the day it's coming out, you can still vote on the Twitter and Facebook page for uh, one of our movies for a future episode. Yes, not the next episode, but the episode after is our 2019 So Far show. And uh, Adam's two picks, instead of being chosen by me, randomly, are chosen now by you, the people, with this, where uh, you can either vote on Replicas, the Keanu Reeves movie that he doesn't want you to talk about from this year, unlike all the other ones, because Keanu's having a fucking moment right now. That's pretty Mm -hmm. impressive. But in January, he came out with a stupid sci-fi movie nobody saw. But you can either vote for that or Glass, the M. Night Shyamalan follow-up to Split and Unbreakable. 
Replica is his only leading because it's Keanu Reeves. It's gotta be. I think so, because I, I don't think no one knows what that movie is except, oh, Keanu's on the fit cover. Absolutely not. That's, that's gotta be the only reason. Or it's dickheads who listen to the show and like, fuck these guys. Let's really get after them. <laughs> that's the only thing it could be. Because, god damn it, I should have picked something else. <laughs> Serenity was right there, Adam. I know, I should have picked that. I haven't seen it, but I'm dying to out of sheer morbid curiosity. I didn't watch it because I'm like, oh, I'm sure Adam's going to do that for the show. That's what we're going to do. But then I ended up watching it anyway, and uh, we'll save it for that episode. But there's uh, a lot in that one, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> James, what's your least favorite movie of the year so far? Mm. Hellboy. Oh, see? I completely agree with you. That is also my least favorite movie of the year so far. Ah, you too suffered it, I see. <laughs> yeah, it was garbage. Uh, but you can still vote on that until June 19th, so the day after this episode comes out, June 19th, 2019. Uh, but you can also send us feedback at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. That's our email address. You can also um, send you know thoughts my way or follow me at not the who's Tommy on Twitter. Um, and I also write reviews at marianithomas.wordpress.com. And you can also find Adam tolling away at doing The Good Dinosaur 2, because no one else is going to do it. Chucking fucking corn. Well, isn't that the subtitle, Good Dinosaur 2, Corn Chucker? Oh, God. That, <laughs> now that I would watch. For more quality content like all of this, you can subscribe <laughs> to us on any of the different podcast platforms like the Spotify, the Stitcher, the YouTube, or the iTunes. It's still around. Tim Cook's waiting to just pull the plug for on now. it. For right. Yeah, but it, it's there right now. And you can rate review us on all those different platforms or just share the show to give us more visibility. Yeah, seriously. You know, I poke <laughs> dank-ass memes all the time. And nobody <laughs> can do anything for me. I give you seconds of joy. You can't give me one second of a share. It's over, man. Well, it's, it's not quite over yet, because now we have to do our picking for next week's episode. And uh, oh. in honor of... Earlier this, uh, at the end of May, was the anniversary of the premiere of Alien, the 40th anniversary. Uh, but I believe it was around in June when it started rolling out to, like, bigger areas when it had sort of its wide American release. Or at least that's what IMDb says, and it's more just an excuse for us to talk about the Alien franchise, which we kind of dabbled in, because we did the Predator episode and we talked about an Alien vs. Predator movie on there. Um, but we're going to talk about um, two movies distinctly from the Alien franchise, specifically. And uh, for all the faults, it's one of the more fascinating big studio franchises, just in terms of how often they get, like, very diverse voices to helm those movies and the really weird results that come out of it. It's all over the place, man. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. And you, Adam, have the two good movies for that, and I have the two bad movies, and we've each assigned numbers between 1 and 10 to both our movies, and usually we would each pick a number between 1 and 10 ourselves to see what good or bad movie we get, but when we have a guest like James, they get the chance to pick... So, James, for Adam's two good movies, number between one and ten. Let's go with number two. At number two, I have Aliens, the sequel. Uh, I'm pretty much guessing you both know what my other pick was. Alien vs. Predator Requiem, right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. No, yes. it was Alien. Alien. I had Alien and Aliens. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do like some of the other ones in the franchise, but not enough to really, like, say, put them as good. <laughs> Right, of course. And now for my two bad choices, James, number between one and ten. God, this is going to be a minefield. Um, let's go with number seven. Okay, right on the dot at number seven, I had the alien film from 1997, 
Alien Resurrection. Well, then, if you remember when I said I kind of like some of the other ones, that would be one of them. <laughs> well, that, that's another one that just has such a weird, different it's so sort of thing. It's bizarre. It's, it's so just ludicrous with that. Um, and speaking of ludicrous, at number three, I had Alien Covenant, the most recent entry, which I also have a lot of issues with, but at the same time, Fassbender in that movie, though, is such a fucking <laughs> performance. He's so good in that movie. I was literally going to go, remember what I said? I kind of like a couple of them. (laughs) (laughs) No, Alien Covenant, I will say, is at least the more interesting of the two more recent terms. Yeah. James, like, what what is your sort of, like, favorite and least favorite of the Alien franchise? I haven't seen Resurrection. I haven't seen Requiem. For me, the Haunted House in Space classic of the original is my favorite and one of my favorite horror films. But of the others I've seen, Alien vs. Predator would probably be bottom. I mean, ugh, fucking Paul W.S. Anderson. Yeah, we, just, we talked about that on the Predator episode. Yep, pretty bad. But uh, thank you, James, for picking these choices. And now uh, we have to go ahead and put, you know, helium balloons on top of the podcast and soar out of here, guys, right? Right. Long live the giant condor. <laughs> I'm on helium. Good night, everybody. <laughs>